Hey, how's it going? This is Textual Healing, and I'm your host, Mallory Smart. Today, I'll be joined by the always amazing Brian Allen Carr. But before diving into this episode, I'd like to ask you to support Textual Healing by following us on Twitter at PodHealing, where you can also find the link to our Patreon. You can also show your love by leaving ratings and reviews on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Pivoting back to the important stuff, though, on this episode, Brian and I discuss his new book, Bad Foundations, from Clash, and then spiral into talking about Taylor Swift, Fugazi, 1984 versus Brave New World, and what it's like being a dad. Without giving any of the other random topics away, here's Brian. Well, all right, so I'm Brian Allen Carr. I was born in Texas, um, lived there for most of my life. My wife, though, she's she's from central Indiana. And um, for the longest time, we you know, we were together and we were both teachers. And we would generally come up to Indiana for the summer times. And then one summer we were up here and we were just like, ah, maybe we should just move up here for a while. We'd been in Texas for quite some time. And I was teaching college, but I'd kind of gotten sick of it. And I was like, well, maybe a change of scene, maybe a change of jobs. So I uh, took a one-year grant-funded job at an engineering school called the uh, Rose-Holman Institute of Technology. And I was writing case studies there. And uh, I think initially we were just going to kind of come up for a year, hang out, and then sort of... You know, when you look for higher ed jobs, you do sort of national searches. And whatever you get is what you take, you know what I mean? But we were up here and the family dug it so much that we decided, you know, to stay. Um, yeah, You know, I mean, and so I've uh, been writing for, I was just kind of doing an essay earlier. My first book came out in 2011. It was a story collection. Um, so I've been putting out stuff, you know, online and in book form since about 08, 09, something like that. Um, I'm about to put out Bad Foundations, which is, I think, my ninth book. But some of those books are kind of small, you know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's my third full-length novel. Uh, and it's about what I do up here. Um, I do foundation repair. Uh, and it was kind of by design. I went and found a job that I thought would be fun to write about. Because um, when I moved up here and I decided not to do the national search for another higher ed job, I was like, well, I adjuncted a little bit. I taught at high school a little bit. But I was like, nah, I kind of want to do something completely different. My gig at Rose Holman was supposed to be like this immersive reporting, uh, you know, case study writing where like I'd go and do these sort of immersive adventures and then write about it. Um, didn't end up being quite what I expected it to be, but I, I wanted to do that type of work. So, um, so my last book, Opioid Indiana, I taught high school for a year and I wrote that book. And then I was like, well, let's go try something really different. Taught, uh, went and sold cars for a little bit, but I couldn't figure out a way to write a book about it. And then, and then I took this job and now I'm, you know, so I've got bad foundations coming out next week. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I got the book like a while yeah. back, actually. It was a whole different year. <laughs> it's crazy how like how how publishing works. You know, you start firing galleys out into the world. You know, significantly before you know the book comes out, and 
It's odd. <laughs> and Clash has always been so great at doing that. So yeah, they've been good. They've on been them. great to work with. So I've known Christoph and Lisa for quite some time, and um, and we've been talking about doing a book for a while. Um, and so it's nice that we're getting to do this. I think this one works better on Clash than it probably would on any other press, um, just because of the way they let me sort the way we packaged it and the way that we're able to just kind of uh, position it, I guess. I was going to say, I was kind of surprised that it was on Clash um, because they've been going in such a horror mm-hmm. direction mm-hmm. lately. So were they already going in that horror direction when, like, you guys, like, decided to do this? Or, like, was this, like, before um, that? A little bit of everything. So, so I met Christoph and Lisa back when I was doing books with Lazy Fascist uh, through the Bizarro World. So, um, uh, you know, so they know me from my books like Motherfucking Sharks or The Last Horror Novel. I mean, they've read my other stuff, too. Um, Which is a book I really want to check out, by the way. Last horror novel. And and it's kind of just a... Uh, it's more of a novella. But, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I mean, it's it's kind of a horror book. But, um... So we always... I don't... You know, I mean, I, I think that they did have a, a really good couple seasons with horror last year. But if you kind of look back through... You know their catalog. Uh, to me, they they sort of fill the hole that Lazy Fascist left. This kind of blend of like, you know, um, yeah, I, I, the way that I saw Lazy Fascist is it was kind of a nice mashup of Bizarro and maybe Alt Lit. I don't really consider myself of either of those two genres, but uh, kind of an intersection of those two things. Mm-hmm. And I think Clash is kind of that too, you know. They they kind of have these horror elements, but then if you look at like you know like Madeline Cash or like uh, uh, you know some of their poetry collections they've done or like Duvet Knox, um, the, you know, I mean, I, I think what they're trying to be is is just kind of this exciting press that does you know books that maybe defy uh categorize uh, category man i can't say the word defy, defy any is uh, simple category uh and so but no i think originally we were thinking about doing a very different book but then w- the way i write is that oftentimes i don't really have a say on what i'm drawn to in terms of a project that i do um and the project that i was working on that we were maybe going to do together it uh, something jumped in its way. Well, this book, Bad Foundation, sort of jumped in its way. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of an intersection with, with the horror world still. Nowhere near as much as my earlier books, but, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I think it's really cool, though. Yeah, I mean, I always like Clash. I mean, I know Lisa a little bit, and, you know, we've worked with each other, and... I immediately, when I looked at the cover, I was just like, is this a Matthew Rivera cover? Because, like, it just screams him because that's who they usually use. But then I saw it wasn't, so... This one's not Rivera. Yeah. Yeah. This is Joel. Yeah, Joel did this one. We were going to use a Rivera cover. We couldn't quite get on the same page. I've had Rivera covers in the past. So Rivera did all my Lazy Fascist books. 
He did uh, the cover for a book for my book Vampire Conditions, which came out on Hauler. Um, and then he's made another cover for me for a book that I've worked on in a couple different ways that just hasn't come out. We'll see if it ever does. Um, but Joel did both the cover on this and the internal drawings. Um, so I, that's one of the main reasons we decided to go that route is because we we thought it would help out with the just kind of contiguous DNA of the entirety of the book. Mm-hmm. Did you always intend to have the internal drawings, by the way, or was that something that was added in, like, as an idea later? No, it was always part of it. And when I, when I had it as, like, you know, the draft that we were sending out, I had rudimentary versions of a lot of the drawings. Some of them I just had, like, little explanations of what I wanted to have. But, no, the images were always a big part of it. Um, the, the way the book's set up is there's all these kind of, like, interstitials so, so some of the interstitials are images and some of the interstitials are like yeah, text threads or, or uh, notes and things of this nature, um, you know, drawings of like diagrams of what a, what a foundation looks like, stuff like that. But no, those were always intended to be in there um, for a couple different reasons. I wanted to have... The, the book plays with time travel a little bit, but time, the time travel of information... Mm-hmm. Not like physical time travel, which I don't think is ever going to be capable. But I do think that information will be able to time travel at points. Um, and so some of the images are kind of out of order, and then they kind of tie back in later on. It's supposed to be a book that feels like it has Easter eggs buried in it. You know what I mean? Like like little things that you can kind of see that maybe kind of come up later on, um, or that maybe upon the second reading would maybe become... Uh, more evident um but yeah i i like interstitials and images and things of that nature i I like a book to kind of move fast um and i feel like sometimes you can convey quite a bit of information with just you know just a little bit of an image or a little bit of a note here and there that sort of propels the story but that just happens almost instantly if that makes any sense I would love to see what the original drawings, like the ideas you came up with, would be like. They weren't good. I mean, it's all exactly, the drawings are all exactly the same in terms of the ideas. Um, I'm going to have to see what the de-awkwarder looks like. (laughs) Oh, that one I can email to you. And in fact, that one had a picture of, originally there was an image, like Trap was standing by that. Like, you know, like a salesman, but we ended up not having Trap. We ended up just having the deaquator. Um It looks pretty similar, but kind of different. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think like that's the kind of thing that could actually become like a meme. Like I would, I would definitely use that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Clears the weird, seeking vibe. Good. Well, and, and I guess that's kind of part of it too, right? Is I just know how people consume media anymore. You know what I mean? So, like, somebody had asked me, like, you know, why did you choose to do text threads in some areas? And it's like, well, just because they're so common. You know what I mean? Like, and everybody knows how to gather information out of those kind of those kind of uh, structures. Um, everybody knows how to, you know, read a meme. Every, you know what I mean? Like, so, so I kind of wanted that, you know, just to kind of chop up the. Eh, you know, the, the, the delivery systems of the novel. 
I mean, you could definitely tell that also in terms of the style, the writing and everything. You break up things very well, not in like an abrupt way where it's just like, ah, why did he finish this chapter? It's one of those like, yeah, he got that across to me right away. I really vibe that. Oh, thank you so very much. I appreciate that. So like it, it's one of those things where I think like maybe if someone like were to like do like a quick like flip through, you know, like what they do at a bookstore and be like, ah, yeah. these chapters are a little choppy. It's like, no, it doesn't feel like that at all. So, and it's taken me a long time to be able to get to the point where I, where I can kind of do that better. It's weird. I mean, I, I think that, like, everybody who is drawn to kind of shorter chapters or whatever or these kind of interstitials, you know, the first couple outings, it's, it, it's not atypical for something to have a choppy feel to it. And I would even say my last book, Opioid, had some interstitials that some people thought were a little too choppy. Um, with this one, I think I've kind of, I mean... On a lot of different levels, I think this book is pretty much the culmination of everything I like about books. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the kind of shorter chapters, um, the, the, the timing and the rhythm is, you know, something that I've, I've worked towards for, you know, over a decade, you know what I mean? So in the um, dedication, this is like, you know, textual healing. I was going to talk about music. So you, you had to know I was going to eventually ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally good. <laughs> um, I didn't just read the dedication. I also saw the thing on Volume 1, Brooklyn, and yeah. I immediately it was just like, oh, you're, you're a father. So I immediately wanted to know, like, one, we'll, we'll skip Tay-Tay for a bit. Okay. And I was going to be like, do you think that that's played a factor in the way you write now? Because, oh, like, abs- yeah, absolutely. Like and you see I how they say- consume media, and you're like, oh, okay, I understand it more. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but, you know, it's like, what is, uh, um, uh, let me think. C.S. Lewis says, hopefully at some point in time you'll get old enough to read fairy tales again. That's a bad paraphrase, probably. But when I, you know, when my kids are, are young, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in bed reading them, you know, stories in, uh, in Opioid Indiana. There's this part where, like, there's, like, shadow puppets um, yeah, I mean, I'd say a lot of the way, a lot of the books that I've read to them, I wouldn't have maybe read again or, or, or ever read. Um, and I think probably I've gleaned from those books in rereading them, you know, like old doll books or like uh, The Little Prince we've read several times. You know, just kind of re-seeing these books where, as a younger person, they were infinitely important to me. But, of course, maybe I hadn't seen them for 20, 30, 40, you know, 40 years maybe even you know what I mean like the runaway bunny or something like that and uh no I mean I think being a dad has definitely re-exposed me to a lot of types of stories that I wouldn't have maybe thought about um had I not had daughters um and I think that that's definitely informed some of the way that I write for sure so when you do the Taylor Swift thing okay this this could either bring Swifties for you, against you, who knows. <laughs> is it a joke? Like, are, are you mocking the cult of Swiftie? Or are you just like, I am happy that there is a Swift out there for my kids to look up to? Um, I mean, it's both, but I would say more. So I, I, I think that chick's rad as hell. I was just texting with my daughter, you know, um... Everybody on Twitter was freaking out about, oh, Taylor Swift's ruined the NFL because, you know, they keep cutting the photos or video of her in the crowd when she's watching Chief games. Well, 
the other night, you know, the Detroit Lions played and they kept cutting to Eminem. And uh, people were, you know, you know, mocking the concept of, like, people bitching about Taylor Swift. And, you know, they were posting videos of, of the cutaways to Eminem. And it's like, Eminem's ruining football, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, um, Taylor Swift talks a lot about the patriarchy. In her Tiny Desk uh, concert, you know, she, she, she talks about um, how she feels like she's unduly judged uh, for the amount of people who she's dated. I don't really see that, to be honest with you. I think, if anything, she's brought that stuff on herself. But to me, that M&M component is probably the best uh, example, you know, of that kind of patriarchal double standard. And yeah, as a person with two, with two daughters, and as a working class person with two daughters, you know, to know that there's a billionaire out there who does stuff like, you know, tips her 18-wheeler drivers for a tour $100,000 a piece. Uh, no, I mean, that's something I could righteously stand behind. And it doesn't make me upset, you know, that it costs so expensive, you know, to, to, to send my oldest daughter to a concert or something because I feel like she is indeed a very strong role model. Um, probably a better role model than I had, you know, artistically as a young person. Um, and so, you know, we talk about, uh, I tease my daughter because I'll bring up, you know, Kanye West, who I absolutely adore. And I think to a certain extent, you know, to Those me... Those are fighting Kanye, words to a Swifty. Oh, hell yeah. But I'll say this. Okay, look, Taylor is a greater celebrity. Kanye is a bigger musical genius. He just is. It just mm. is what it is, right? Um, but she destroyed his, you know, she destroyed him. Like, so, so, so her last album came out the same week that that he lost all of his, you know, that he lost all of his Adidas contracts and stuff. Well, it was like the biggest album ever, you know? So to me, it's like a big kind of like, you know, fuck you to Kanye West or whatever. Can't wait for the like biopic, Yay and Tay. And that'll be like the culmination of the entire of the story, right? When Midnight's comes out and when Kanye goes on his racist rants and loses the Adidas contract, these things are three days apart from each other. So I don't know. I mean, I think she's neat for pop culture. I, I like her. Um, you know, she's not my favorite musician, but I, I enjoy liking her because my daughters like her, if that makes sense. Oh, that totally makes sense. I mean, I was going to assume that that's where it definitely came from. I mean, my husband is actually a Swifty. I'm not. Nice. Um, <laughs> I am what some people say a reluctant Taylor Swift fan where I know some of her songs, but, like, we watched the Eras concert um, on mm-hmm. New Year's Eve. I was only able to guess, like, a handful of the songs, so that's what did you are. like that? Did you like it? Because I definitely went and saw that in the theater with my family. Uh, I thought it was pretty rad. <laughs> See, I think the theater experience would have been a much cooler experience, too. I, I just watched it on Apple TV, yeah. so, like, just being two people in a room watching it, it was just one of those, like, he was, like, really into it, and I was just like, I think I know this song. Whereas when I'm was, sure, yeah. like, at the theater, people were probably having mini concerts, weren't they? Oh, dude, 100%. Little girls clapping, singing along, all this, you know. It was pretty interesting. Um, the only parts I don't like about that is, you know, she, she spends time, she's like, she'll talk for a while, and sometimes it's pretty cringe. She, she's cringe, you know I mean? She's a little maudlin. She, she says stuff, my daughter says that every time she cusses, it's like she just learned cuss words for the first time you know um but 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 yeah but her fans clearly fucking love it you know it's uh she's a powerful person it's bizarre 
I can't think of, you know, maybe since Elvis or the Beatles, somebody has had that much power from a pop culture standpoint. Um, like, dude, she's got little girls watching football. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, I didn't even know she was dating a football player until certain youngins in my family were suddenly watching football. Yeah. And I was just like, what's the big deal now? What's going on? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's that's a lot of pull, you know, but... I mean, I don't know, like, again, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a Swifty, but, you know, my, my daughters are, that's fucking, like, crazy are. Just like, I mean, and some of their friends are, and some of them aren't. Um, but then, too, I mean, you know, that's kind of how it starts with liking art. You know, shit, when I was a kid, I really liked Vanilla Ice, because he was from Dallas, and I was living in Dallas at the time. Well, Vanilla Ice sucks. Oh, but so he was an dunk imp- on you all day about that. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, I was a big MC Hammer fan too. But you have to understand that those songs came out when I was like in the sixth grade, and 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 I was one of the first people I knew who listened to rap. I I went to elementary school in in Southwest Houston at a predominantly African American school, um, and we all just listened to rap. In middle school, I lived in a town called Plano, which is right outside of Dallas, and it was a very affluent white town and. I was the only kid who listened to rap, you know what I mean? So, um... Did that make you the cool kid or the weird kid? The weird kid. Uh, yeah, it was terrible. Like, for, for... I mean, they called me, you know, wigger and stuff like that. You know, it was bad. (laughs) Back in those days. Oh, it was mean, bro. It was totally mean times, yeah. No, I was ostracized for it, for sure. I dressed wrong, you know? Like, I I dressed kind of hip-hop or whatever, Everybody else was in fucking polos. Uh, no, I was very much out of my element in that area for sure. You want cringe uh, polos are coming back. I know. <laughs> but they were pretty popular in the early 2000s, too. And everybody would, like, have their collars popped up, you know, and listen to the strokes in a polo with a, with a popped collar. So Everything's so damn cyclical. You know, and it's it's all based upon... Uh, well, not all, but definitely like, you know, it's because parents give their kids the shit that they had when they were kids. You know what I mean? It's like, and so the, the, the spans are getting wider. It used to be every 20 years, you'd see a resurgence. And now it seems like it's going to be every 30. And then who knows, you know, maybe, maybe that, maybe, you know, as birth rates kind of go down, maybe like it'll sort of change, but like definitely, you know, I mean, yeah, my, my, my daughter's friends and her and stuff, they listen to the music I listened to when I was in high school. Well, that's because her parents are my age. <laughs> I really also think it's, like, whatever shows up on, like, the random apps, like TikTok and everything, whatever's going down mm-hmm. on the algorithm. Yeah, but then it's also what you can get your parents to spend money on, right? Or at least, you know, what will be what money will be spent on. Dude, my daughter sent me a link with a Strokes t-shirt. Hell yeah, I'd buy that for a Fugazi t-shirt. Hell yeah. I went into her room the other day. She's like, she's got one of the guitars I had when I was in high school. She's got a chair that I had when I was in high school. And it's stupid, but you're like, oh, you, you're me again, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So, so like, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll spend money on shit that reminds you of you. You know what I'm saying? Like, as long as they like it, too. And then I think it kind of doubles up that buying power. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's like rather than, you know, ra- rather than just that one demographic spending money on that thing, you get those kind of two demographics. 
And then it kind of just emboldens the resurgence of of that thing. Um, but yeah, definitely the algorithms play a big part into it too, I'm sure. What would you say like Okay, what what is your like number one obsession like right now band-wise, music-wise? So I was on Twitter there for a second and we were talking about Fugazi and Elliot Smith and so I guess I'm listening to a lot of Fugazi and Elliot Smith because because I um because I I rated the album like somebody was like you should rate the albums I was like all right cool so I listened to those again newer bands um rap probably Billy Woods is one of my favorite rappers and in fact he has an album called Hiding Places and um and a lot of it seems to be about like crawl spaces and foundations he even has a song called Spider Hole where the first line it in is a uh, holding my breath in the crawl space, weight tape to my body. Um, and he's just a phenomenal rapper. I'd say he's one of the the more recent artists that I've kind of lost my mind about. He's really good. I like Pine Grove a lot. Big Thief I like a lot. Um, Hobblewon, I, I think. I saw that really one coming. Which one? Big Thief. So what's kind of funny about Big Thief is Buck Meek, the guitar player from Texas, and uh oh my lord i can't remember her name adrian lanker is that what it is she's from indianapolis and so my wife's from indianapolis and i'm from texas so big thief is very much kind of my family band if that makes any sense um my my daughter's first concert was a big thief concert (laughs) i just love it when you could peg it on somebody be like that's what i bet they like and like you said i was like yes okay i like i wrote that down even i was just like that's awesome do guesses yeah i love them they're so good i actually kind of feel like adrian is sort of like the the new elliot smith and that she's prolific um a little bit sad a little bit maudlin but like maybe there's a little bit of a ferocity in her um like if you listen to some of her songs like vampire empire and then Smith had some of these more kind of like eh, quasi punk rock songs. Um, yeah, I really like Big Thief. It's good stuff. So you discuss a lot of music and everything that obviously have titles and themes and everything that I think mm-hmm. fit pretty heavily with this book. So let's delve into Bad Foundations. All right. So. We spoke a little bit about what it's about, sort of vaguely. This is my favorite thing, because obviously I will cut out the part that we gossiped about Sam Berman. Let's just act like we totally talk pure shit about him, shall we? (laughs) I like it. But no, uh, he was at my literary reading a couple weeks ago, and he brought a friend with him, and his friend actually asked if I could pitch my book to him, but like without telling him what my book was about. Yeah. And I was going to ask if you could do that with your book. Can you pitch it to me or the world, really? The millions of listeners right now pitch Bad Foundations without telling us what it's about. So no plot detail at all? None. So I guess what it's about is, 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 is rebirth and confusion and expectations that are subverted. Additionally, it's about getting high <laughs> and raising children. <laughs> you just sold a lot of books with that last sentence. <laughs> it is about raising kids, though, in a tripped-out way. 
I think it's pretty badass. And if there was an actual plot point now, what would you want to focus on? I mean, I'd say one of the bigger plot points is like the idea of looking for uh, answers in unique places. And the unique place where some of these answers are searched for uh, is underneath houses in this particular book. And, And it's, you know, it's supposed to be fairly metaphorical, right? I mean, it's supposed to be a sort of analysis of of American vibe right now, like the vibe of, of the American citizen um, to a certain extent. And and to me, like, the best metaphor for that, especially in these times, is homes, simply because they're more expensive than they've ever been. People have a harder time getting them than they ever have. Um, we're building fewer of them, uh the, the pandemic changed the way we thought about living in our houses. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, it's a little bit about uh, homeownership, if that makes any sense. I mean, it, not not to the extent that, like, I talk about mortgages and stuff like that or zoning, but I think it is about being aware of your own dwelling, you know, and your own existence. Um, mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's the bedrock of where you live. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're both writers here. We could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the uh, synopsis on the back, and I was asked also recently to read the synopsis off the back of my book, and I actually had to like continuously pick up my book to see it. Did you write yours, or did Clash write yours? I think Clash wrote it. And then I tweaked it because it's, you know, I mean, it's I think it's something like it's an absurdist comic look at, a you know, I don't know, foundation repair expert, something like that. No, yeah, I think they wrote it and maybe I added a sentence or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happens here. I don't think a lot of people know that with authors because they're like, why did you have to pick up your book to see what it was about? And it's like, oh, you oh, yeah, a synopsis. <laughs> Yeah, because, yeah, a lot of times, you know, the back material of a book is written by the press. I mean, sometimes not. I've definitely had had people ask me to write, you know, the back material of books. It's been a while. Um, And some of my books, like Motherfucking Sharks, on the back of it, I think there's like a hymn that I made up. On the back of uh, the last horror novel in the history of the world, I don't think there's anything. (laughs) Maybe a blurb. I don't know, you know, but like... Um, is that book like capable of being found anymore now that Lazy Fascist is gone? I think you can still order. I think Eraserhead maybe still puts it out, but I'm not 100% certain. I don't know. Um, and I could always, I mean, I suppose I could move it over to pr- at a different press or something. Um, but I think it's still available. I don't know if it's still being produced, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's a great question. You would think I would know. <laughs> if not me, who would? Because <laughs> I'm just like, I, I want to read this book. I don't know why, like, it wasn't until I'm just talking to you right now where I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, there might be an e-version of it. I might have a copy. If I have a copy, I'll, I'll mail you one. <laughs> See, that's the secret reason why I really do this podcast is to, like, kind of like, <laughs> get free books. 
Oh, Dude, also I sometimes people Why do not? bands. I mean, like, I get records, too. Oh, dude, hell yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to have a reason for doing it, and sometimes a fringe benefit is the best reason. Exactly. <laughs> Why the fuck else would I be talking to you? Sorry. Yeah, I'm not that fun. <laughs> oh, come on. A guy uh, who wrote about <laughs> high on legal weed and searching for answers to life's mysteries. Okay, I'm sorry. That definitely wasn't written by you, but yeah. That I didn't write. That's true. I don't think I did. No, that, 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 that was the back. I just like the, the specification, legal weed. Like, oh, okay, well, that makes so, me feel better. Yeah, you can get, well, so here in Indiana, you can buy Delta 8 at tons of different gas stations, you know? Mm-hmm. You can't everywhere, right? Different states are different, but you can't buy regular weed in Indiana. We have to go to Michigan or or maybe Iowa, too, but, which we do some, too. But Chicago, we have our legal weed as well. Do y'all really? Yeah. Good for y'all. So do y'all have to, do you have to go to, uh, or do people have to go to dispensaries for it, I guess? Yeah, we have dispensaries all the time. I only started smoking again for the first time, like, six months ago, and it's just because okay. I smelled it at my therapist's office, and I was like, someone else has been smoking here. Nice. And what I realized do you think on the ride home like that I passed one, and I was like, I'm just huh. going to go in. Do you feel like it helps you, or do you do you like it, or? Yeah, I mean, I don't do like straight weed. I do like a mixture of like weed and CBD oil. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I like it. I've always see when you say I've always smoked weed, people then start like putting these really weird age like guesses, like oh, yeah. 10, 13, like no, since I was like nineteen years yeah. old. <laughs> But, See, uh, I started smoking weed in high school, and then I started drinking, and when I started drinking, I quit smoking weed, and then I drank pretty heavily for, oh, geez, 20 years, and I, I'm convinced that had I not s- switched from weed to alcohol, I would have had a much better life, <laughs> but, but it was so demonized at the time. Like at the time, they wanted you to. They're trying to demonize it again now, I've been noticing. Yeah, they want to say that it might cause schizophrenia and things of this nature. Thank you. You've been getting those articles too? Yeah. I mean, I do think that it is possible that if you're, I don't think this is a condition or a term, but let's say pre schizophrenic. Let's say you're, you're prone to schizophrenia and you get blasted high several, you know, quite a bit. I could see it pushing you over an edge a little bit, but I will say, you know, when I was, when I was in high school, it was, you know, if you got busted by the cops with beer, they'd make you pour it out. If you got busted with weed, they'd take you down to jail usually, you know what I mean? Or like, you know, the, the, everybody would much rather have you drink than smoke weed. And, and I'll be honest with you. I think that's backwards. I, I, I do think it's, I think alcohol, I've seen alcohol ruin lots of people's lives. I don't know if I've ever met anybody whose life got destroyed by weed. No, they just tend to be very repetitive and boring people if they got way too into it. Yeah, or antisocial. And I think, you know, a lot of, yeah. pe- a lot of people will say, well, you know, look, alcohol is legal because it actually, it makes a more motivated addict. You know what I'm saying? Like, like... 
you know, the, the earliest containers that we can find that human beings made were, were used for uh, 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 fermentation. You know, like when we, when we started growing wheat and shit, it wasn't for bread. It was for alcohol, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's probably been a thing that's been a huge catalyst for human beings. And it's probably a lot of the reasons why we behave as we behave. Definitely our, you know, our communities are sort of built around it. Like if you go to a church, you know what I mean? Like, especially if it's like an Episcopalian or a Catholic church, they treat alcohol, you know, wine as sacred. It is an element of the same blood of Christ. Yeah, it's Christ. It's Christ's blood, you know, and it's kind of weird. Like when I, when I was like first in recovery for alcohol, you know, cause I can't drink. I don't, it, it's been a while since I've drank. I've never, I think the longest I've made it is about two years. You know, I fall off every now and again. It's bullshit. Hopefully I never drink again. But I remember when I was first trying to get sober and I'd go to church and they'd have this wine in like a gold bottle. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, what if I was a heroin addict and they had a gold fucking syringe up there? Like, how bad would that fuck me up? You know what I mean? And the mm-hmm. answer, I think, is the same. <laughs> I mean, psychologically. I've heard that, like, withdrawal from alcohol could be just as bad depending on how far down you are. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was first getting sober, I went up and did, you know, communion. And, you know, they dipped a little wafer in the wine and they put it on your tongue. And I remember that thing hitting my tongue and I just felt my soul fucking scream. Like in fucking Lord of the Rings when, you know, when Bilbo sees the ring and shit, you know. And he turns into like a little bit of a psychopath again. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's odd, but it, it seems to definitely be a cornerstone of our society. Not just alcohol, but all drugs, really. I mean, it's definitely one of those ways of, like, how we get through the day. Especially, you know, I think we're definitely going to be a lot more aware of it when we're in the creative world, more so. Unless it's cocaine and we're working at sales. (laughs) Cocaine? If we're in New York and shit and all that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, salespeople do shit tons of cocaine. Fucking, let's snort cane and fucking make money. (laughs) I didn't even know that people really snorted cocaine that much until I went to the East Coast. Like, in the Midwest, weed and heroin mm-hmm. are king. Like, that, that and drinking. Where I'm from in South Texas, cocaine is fairly, you know, you can get it. Um, so there was quite sure a bit. you could find it, oh. but I don't know where you'd find it. Uh, I mean, back home, you'd drive to Mexico and look for the guy with the biggest belt buckle. that's what you did you'd go to Benito Juarez Avenue in Nueva Progreso and you'd look for the guy with the biggest belt buckle and you'd walk up to him and say hey man can you give me cocaine and he'd be like yeah I'll be right back he'd take a bike ride (laughs) come back with cocaine now then you'd have to take that back across the border so I I tell people all the time I'm probably one of the only living riders in America who's bought drugs (laughs) out of the country and brought him across multiple, multiple times. I have a friend who was a drug smuggler. I always wonder how he's doing today. But, yeah, he, he would do in and out of Juarez. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, like, yeah, and then, down, you know, you could always, it wouldn't have to be cocaine. You could go over and get codeine. You could go over and get whatever you wanted. I was going to say, with codeine, is that something that people really do that much these days? 
No, I. It's not very typical, but I do think that sometimes people will will call things. Well, no, that's not true. I just watched a video of people getting kicked out of Top Golf from for drinking syrup. So Houston, um, in the rap world, codeine's pretty big. Syrup, yeah, syrup, or they call it lean or Brilla. Yeah, I mean it's nowhere near as big as say fentanyl, but nobody wants fentanyl. People want codeine. <laughs> Like, fentanyl's what you get when you can't get the stuff that's good. <laughs> so, how do you go from writing a book um, where we're high on legal weed, and obviously you discuss alcohol issues, and then obviously you wrote a book, Opiate Indiana. So, are you familiar with a lot of the opiate issues? So, yes and no. When I was 13, I broke my ankle real bad playing football. And they put me on Demerol, and then they gave me Vicodin, which is a type of opiate. And ever since then, I've had addiction issues. So, not an atypical story for what you hear in opioid, you know, cases in, in more modern times. Modern. Fuck, I'm that old. But, <laughs> but, like, same kind of deal. Somebody gets hurt. They go to a doctor. The doctor gives them opiates, they get hooked, you know, mm-hmm. and like, and, and a lot of that is due to the fact that those industries had very good sales forces who were telling very big lies, you know what I mean? Like those were supposed to be non-addictive drugs. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with it. I've never been a, just an opioid addict. I've never done heroin. I've done Demerol. I've done morphine. I've smoked opium. I've never shot heroin. I don't remember unless I was hammered and no there's no fucking one um but no I've never been like a, a pill addict or anything um they, but I mean I, I I could be fast though like I think that's the thing is I've always known that like uh to, I've always known that that's a door I can't I could never open and then close again mm-hmm Wow, I really am thinking about opium right now. I, I did that once, and I actually jumped into Lake Michigan in the winter on a day. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that one was wow. fun. No, I mean, I remember, so, like I said, when, I was, when my leg was broken, I was in the hospital, I had to get surgery. And they put me on a Demerol machine, and every five minutes I could hit a button, you know, and, and it would hit, you know. And, like, I just, you would, I remember the feeling so well of that Demerol landing in my arm and then just slowly creeping across my whole body and just the euphoria. Like, nothing matches it, dude. Like, it's bizarre how great it feels. Um, And so I think to a certain extent I was always like, yeah, bro, you can't go. (laughs) You can't go to that place. (laughs) (laughs) See, they still have that button now, though, but it just, like, it'll just do a placebo thing like they have it timed really crazy i i learned that from my therapist because i was actually saying that i was nervous about a surgery i was going to get like a couple years ago Uh and she's like it doesn't matter if you keep clicking it It, it'll only release like at this specific time no yeah like so so that yeah exactly every five minutes it would it would release so the and the doctor was like you can press it all you want you won't get a hit, but every five minutes. And he told me, you'll never be able to make it past two. I made it to eight. <laughs> like, I was just... Oh, my gosh. I was just... Because he was like, you'll pass out. And so, I mean, it was literally like... It was like my job in that... That sounds like a dare. 
It was, dude. It was like my job to try to get as many as I could get. Um, just try to fight to stay awake to get another hit. It was a trip. But no, yeah, you could hit it as much as you wanted, but yeah, only every five minutes would it kick in. Yeah, I think it's definitely spaced out a little bit more now. Probably. I, I wouldn't know. I would hope so. You would hope for a 13-year-old boy get a fucking Demerol hit every five minutes, a little bit of a trip. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of like a little kid in my family right now just fucked up their knee from soccer and they're on the oxy right now because of it and i'm just like what like uh, right after that whole like mini series too like, oh no yeah don't do it mm. yeah well and then too you know i mean you have no idea maybe their doctor was like well yeah we know it's bad but we'll just monitor it better you know like sometimes people are that way they feel like if they know a thing it's less likely to happen right like you know, the analogy I always use is like, you know, 1984 was supposed to be a cautionary tale, you know, not like a roadmap. <laughs> but we all read 1984 and we were all like, ah, that'll never happen to us as we download apps on our phone that monitor us wherever we go. You know what I mean? See, that's the one issue with technology I really hated because for the longest time, I always argued that Brave New World was the more likely situation mm-hmm. was going to happen not 1984 and then technology came on in i think it's a hybrid i think we do both i think we thought we'd only do one and we do both we have our phones that monitor us and then we have our and drugs they satiate that we take. us so much yeah yeah we do yeah we, we take soma and we get watched <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a you know and it's funny because wasn't huxley was orwell's teacher i think um I think Huxley didn't, unless I have it back, I, sometimes I get it backwards. I think Huxley told Orwell that it wasn't going to be that way. It was going to be more like his way. But they they were intimately familiar with each other's work. I think they're both kind of correct, though, and um, how it worked. I mean, it's just kind of both. Maybe Maybe Brave New World is a little bit more of the capitalist side of it. And then maybe 1984 is a little more the communist side. I don't know. They definitely both seem to be, both versions of of dystopia seem to be, you know, existent. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing right now that they were peers. So, like, no, wait, Orwell was one of his pupils. Got it. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, so, yeah, so Brave New World came out first. I think. But they did talk and correspond a lot with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a book I would read if they actually have a collection of those letters. Ooh, that would be neat. I remember I read a uh, a really cool book. It's different writers, but s- similar construct. Where it, was, uh, it was Hemingway and Faulkner, and it was their letters about each other. Um, so I, like, are they, they gossiping both, about each other? A little bit, yeah. They had both studied with Sherwood Anderson. Um, which is weird to me, you know, like the guy who wrote Winesburg, Ohio, they both had worked with him. Faulkner got his first book published because he, he wrote a book. He takes it to, to, uh, uh, Sherwood Anderson's wife, gives it to her. He's like, you know, will Sherwood help me get this published? She's like, I tell you what, meet me back here tomorrow or whatever. They meet back up. She's like, 
Sherwood's going to help you get it published so long as he doesn't have to read it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I always thought that was the greatest word, but I've always... I've always enjoyed that they both have the same teacher and was so different in terms of how they wrote. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Stylistically, um, very similar things. I think they were, they were they both you know they're both modernists. They both had this idea that uh, modernization was going to you know deeply affect human beings. But yeah, you know, or so like with Huxley and Orwell. It's I like when when you see these people who are like aware of each other or worked in so, sort of the same spaces, but had these kind of divergent ideas of things. Um, so yeah, I would definitely read their letters. That'd be neat as hell. Yeah. I think someone needs to get on that if they haven't already. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It ain't going to be me though. I don't like doing research. <laughs> see, I used to work in an archive, so yeah, it, it, it's a bitch. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, you know, my undergrad was in journalism. I've always, I don't have a very good mind for, for like, for detail. I just, I don't. I I have a little bit of a better mind for, like, analogy. And so, like, research to me is a very detail-driven thing, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Uh, I got too much ADD, man. I, I don't have a super good ability to focus like that. No, I, I can definitely vibe that. And archives would definitely be difficult with that. Yeah. Now, I actually, I was studying to be a historian, so. Oh, cool. What was that, your, that what, would definitely explain what was your, that one. What was your era or locale or what, what kind of history were you into? Oh, yay. Another podcast where I get to explain this one. Oh, do we do it a lot? <laughs> oh, no, no. I just did it like the other day we'll see maybe that podcast will air maybe it won't i'm not sure if i liked it um oh no was the, was the guest mean <laughs> oh no it was actually where i was the guest and i was oh. just like oh i am failing to explain <laughs> Dude, but, I, no it was i was, on a, uh, I was feminism. On the other day and i cried a little bit they asked me about i can't remember really? what I was, yeah i started talking about my daughters in the future and i got fucking teary i was like oh no <laughs> So we'll see. Are you how a that... panicker? Are you the type that'll like start talking to the person later and be like, you know what? I don't think that went well. Maybe no, we not at all. It. No, I don't give a shit. I'll just out of sight, out of mind, whatever. I tweeted about it. I saw it Twitter at the time. I was like, hey guys, I definitely cried a little bit on a podcast. So if y'all want to hear me cry, good luck. <laughs> or or uh, you're in luck. <laughs> see, no, I was being I don't... hit by questions where it's like, do you remember the outlet days? And I was like, a decade ago? No, like, oh, well, I don't. Did they yeah. go away? I don't. It's weird to me because most of those writers are still around. They've, they've sort of changed their shtick. I was just talking about like this. I have evolved, yeah. Yeah. They've turned, a lot of them have become, um, they've gone from being like nihilistic and ironic to trying to be a little bit more sincere. And I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's like an aging. It would be weird if you're like in your early 20s mm-hmm. doing that and then like going into your 30s having the same attitude. It's true. Yeah, how long could you have that attitude? I kind of like the second wave of it a little bit better, though. I mean, yeah, a lot better. I never, you know, I was around in that era, but I never considered myself alt-lit. In fact, I remember somebody was doing a book about alt-lit writers, and that, you know, 
I was like, are you putting me in? Or I can't remember. They Maybe they asked me if I was going to be in there for something. And they were like, do you want to be in it? And I was like, no, I don't think I belong. You know, I'm like, I'm not really an old lit writer. A lot of them I liked. Some of them I didn't. Is what it is. Is that what your history focus was on, alt-lit? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was actually uh, feminism in the Russian Revolution. Ooh, nice. Have you seen that show, uh, The Great? Yeah. Catherine the Great, love that shit. And I love that one of the fannings is still working, so yeah. There you go. I don't know why, it just made me think of that right quick. I don't... No, I find Russian Revolution, I mean, Russian history in general fascinating. Yeah. No, that meant, yeah. I don't know too much about it, to be honest with you. I mean, I've, I know from, you know, the novels that I've seen or the, or the shows or movies or whatever. So, yeah, that's I know. What I, I guess I've read so. Animal Farm. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Obviously, we know who you like reading Orwell. <laughs> well, in high school, I'd say Orwell was one of my favorite for sure. Who would you say one of your, like, formative, like, authors? Like, wh- what was, like, your biggest author you loved reading? Probably Vonnegut. Okay. I'd say. Again. Yeah. Vonnegut, Ray Bradbury... I really liked uh, Carlos Castaneda's books, you know, the where he talked about, like, the first one is The Yaki Way of Knowledge. It was all about drug usage with the Native Americans. I read a bunch mm-hmm. of those. Jim Thompson was super huge to me. There was a writer named Piers Anthony when I was younger, and he wrote fantasies. He had a Xanth series that I was a really big fan of. And then in high school, Irvin Welsh. I liked Nick Hornby a lot. Um, read a lot of band books, but like, it's hard to say. I would say Vonnegut was the first person who I read who I was like, I could probably write books. And that was probably, you know, when I was in my, probably read my first Vonnegut book when I was like 18, to be honest. I don't, I don't think I started reading him till a little bit later. So do you think like that's exactly when you first started getting into like the literary like mindset or that's the first no, time like yeah my, I could write My dad was my dad was a preacher and so he, when I was very young I thought writing was something I was supposed to do cuz he would write his sermons and you know be like working on them and like reading them out loud to himself and stuff and so I always messed with either music or writing, you know, music through the church or, or writing um, from the age of probably six. Yeah, six years old, I was already starting to try to do poems and stuff. Now, I later on, I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't want to be a fiction writer. Um, and then I did a little journalism, and, and I decided that I didn't like you didn't have as much control of the story. And again, my mind wasn't super great for like uh recall, fast mm-hmm. recall and tidbits. And this is before smartphones, you know what I mean? And so, and so then I gravitated probably in my mid twenties toward wanting to be a fiction writer as opposed to a nonfiction writer. And what was it like that made you do that? Like big leap into doing it? Um, I think I just felt better at it. Like, I think, you know what? I think I probably read Jesus' Son. 
and I learned what an MFA was, and I decided I wanted to go study being a fiction writer. Um, and then I started just writing a bunch of, you know, short stories. But even before that, I'd been in bands and written music and, you know, lyrics and stuff. So I was always a fan of, like, writing, period, you know what I mean? But I think in my in my mid-20s, I was like, I'm going to start writing and I want to go get an MFA and maybe teach college. That's what was maybe the thing that really locked me into to, to sitting down and performing the act of writing. So... What kind of music did you play? It was kind of like uh, marijuana country punk. You know what I mean? Like it was like Texas, Texas coastal punk, and I had listened to a lot of rap. You know, so with the you know Modest Mouse, I'd say was very similar. You know, we were pretty similar to Modest Mouse. I was playing right around the time they were too. We are, you know, like when I was eighteen, I had just maybe heard a little bit of them. Built to Spill was big for me. Old ninety sevens. Um, oh, they're so great. I love them. I don't uh, meet a lot of people who like them. That's awesome. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I'd say they've done, they're some of my favorite guitarists of all time. I think they have some of the coolest albums I've ever heard. Their live album is insane. Mm hmm. Yeah. But yeah, music like that, I'd say. You wrote most of the songs when you played? Yeah, I think all of them. I had a little three-piece band. All of my, we all kind of went to high school together, um, and we played together until I, you know, until we were in our mid twenties. Recorded a bit, um, to, played gigs, never really toured. Uh, we never really lived all in the same town for long enough. Once we had gotten old enough, you know what I mean. So, like in high school, we'd play little shows, and then. And then, you know, like, Jed went off to school, Eamon went off to school, and then we kind of regroup in some town. But, yeah, we played together for, oh, eight years, I guess. Um, and some of the best memories of my life is with those two dudes, you know. Do you think you'll ever write about that? No, I don't know how it would. No, I wouldn't. I, I, I don't... Um, I don't know if there's many like music novels that I'm super into. Now, would I write about it in in some way, memoir style? I don't know. I think if I was going to write about them, because we were friends in a lot of ways, I think I'd write about like hunting and fishing with them, or we used to always go every Thursday afternoon to go pick mushrooms out in the corn, you know, in, in the cow fields. Uh, I'd probably gravitate more towards some of the shenanigans we did rather than than maybe the music that we made. Um, but it was good times. I mean, we always had some house that we'd go play at and, you know, like a band house or whatever. And it was fun. It was like, it because, it, it, um, you know, as a writer, you're not usually working with other people, right? You're kind of working by yourself. Um, that camaraderie is, is nice in art which you can find with, like, you know, a press that you might work with or something, but it's not quite the same as being in a room and, like, making stuff up with people in a, in real time, you know? Yeah, I also wonder what that process was like, like, where, like, say, like, you come over with a song and then, like, what, just everybody just hangs out and, like, tries to, like, parse through your lyrics and figures out, like, where they come in? 
little bit. It's funny. Uh, my buddy Eamon, who is my bass player, he sent me three videos the other day that he found when he was like digging through his closet. And on each of the videos, we're like writing songs together. And I think, yeah, I mean, it would be like it'd be like somebody had a riff or an idea, and then that person would just kind of keep playing that, and then other people would try stuff on top of it. Um, is how we did it. We were usually when we started as a little band, we were kind of like we were all instrumental. We did there was no singing, and we played like. I don't know, like acid jazz or something when I was in high school. You know, like when I was 16, we would just do these... We were big fans of, like, Cream and old Pink Floyd and old Velvet Underground, and we would just kind of make shit up as we went along, you know what I mean? Um, We weren't talented enough to do that, but we thought it was fun. And so we probably had played that way for four years before we even had the idea of, like, hey, let's do songs with actual lyrics and choruses and stuff. But I bet it's different for different people just based on how long they've been together and their their musical acumen. I'd imagine if you're really good, you know, people could be like, hey, we're going to be in the key of G, it's one, four, five. And you know what I mean? Like they can they can articulate it in a way where it takes away some of the magical thinking. But I really enjoyed the magical thinking back in the day of us all just kind of being in a room drinking a little bit, getting high, and just kind of making shit up together. So I have one author. Um, I'm a publisher, too. I don't know if you yeah. know that. Yep. Um, and one of his friends just, like, bought one of his books, and he messaged me saying that they used to be in a band together, also a Texan, just fun coincidence, and he was even saying, like, I, I always find it weird when someone will, like, write a message to me while buying a book. And it's like, I, I didn't even know why you bought the book, but thank you. <laughs> but he was saying that, like, he always knew that this person was going to be a great writer based off of the way he wrote songs and everything. Do you think, like, your old band members would have that same vibe? Did they, did they always vibe that you were going to go and be, like, a really great writer? Yeah, I mean, they were older than I was, and I was kind of like the head of the band um kind of or you know i mean i was like the chief songwriter and i think they kind of had a uh they were proud of me like i was their little brother proud you know what i mean and so so yeah i mean i think they probably anticipated plus they you know i started doing kind of musical journalism when i was in my early 20s and so they knew i was doing some of that and uh yeah i mean i think they they anticipated that that I would keep doing stuff. And my bass player was in Portland the other day. He bought opioid from uh, Powell's, you know. Um, I had a uh, a short story turned into a movie. Johnny Knoxville was in it. We were all pretty big fans of him, you know, with, with, uh, with Jackass and everything. And so that was pretty exciting, you know, for them as well. Um, don't keep up with my drummer near as much as I do my basses, but yeah, no, I think they, they wanted me to, to succeed. I also had an older brother kill himself when I was 21. He was 23. I was 21. And I remember, you know, at that time we got a lot more serious about music for a few years because that he had been in the original incantation of the band. He was no longer in it. He didn't really like playing music, but so the other guys knew him too. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was always, I mean, geez, I think when we were 22, 23, we thought we'd be a successful band, but we could just never get the 
the business side of stuff down. We, I like some of the music we did. We were just never very good at like execution. We drank too much. <laughs> I mean, that's the fun part about it when you're like really young and like it's like, oh my god, we're gonna get there. Yeah, it's it, the pipe dream is great. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you it's sit around high off of just like thinking about it. Oh, hundred percent. Or like, you know, I remember. We, we we did a little demo or like a little ten song CD. We did it in three days. Um, a buddy of ours, his dad had a recording studio in Corpus Christi. You ever seen that movie Irving Cowboy? Yes. So it takes place in a bar called Mickey Gillies, and Mickey's uh, cousin had a recording studio in Corpus, and we went and recorded there. And like we, you know, we were there for three days and we recorded a little, you know, a little album real fast. And then we finished up uh, one night at like, it was like three in the morning when we finished with like the first uh, produced 10 songs. We hadn't mastered it or anything yet. But, you know, we we went over to a friend's house and we listened to the whole thing, drank it. And I think we might have had cocaine. But, you know, I mean, and just probably that, you know, those few hours where we were sitting around having done that all together yeah, I mean, it felt it felt special for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, you definitely felt like on fire. Like, oh, dude, we've done something so great. And, it, you know, we were 20. I mean, shit, I think I was 22, 23. Um, and it was good for how old we were. You know, I mean, we never could have like made it on that music. But but we were we were so proud of it that, you, you know, you at least could pretend to have that you would. <laughs> <laughs> I dig that. I really do dig that. So, like, if your child today, how many do you have again? Two. I got a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old. If they were going to say, I'm going to start a band, how lit would you be about that? So my daughter has my first guitar, and one of the first songs she learned to play was Angelis by Elliot Smith, which I can't even really play. She's pretty good. And so she writes little songs and stuff. That's what I said, like, the other day I was in her room and she, you know, my old guitar was there, my old chair that, like, I had in high school, you know, and I was just like, no, I mean, you know, beyond lit, like, just out of your mind. It's the coolest fucking thing in the world. Uh, Yeah, no, like, when she, the first time she played me Angelis, I about shit my pants. I was like, uh, yeah, it was like being in heaven kind of for a second, you know what I mean? I think it's pretty badass that your, like, daughter is obviously learning music probably better than any of us could and also as a swifty i mean come on that's diversity right there i dig it i enjoy watching it and and i've and i've you know like when they first started liking taylor swift i'll be honest i probably didn't like her but then i was like well i got two choices (laughs) you know what i mean like i can you know hate my daughter's like or i can just like get my mind right and be like fuck yeah chick's red (laughs) <laughs> and luckily, she kind of makes it easy. She's she's interesting, at least. Yeah, I'm just going to say, if she didn't keep it interesting, then what would be the point? But at least, you know, she gets your royalties right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not that she yeah, needs them. Theory. I mean, come on. What would your royalties... Oh, no. She can't... Who would she tip, like, these royalties with? Like, can you even predict? No, uh, nobody. A homeless she, person? Yeah. 
Nah, if. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I found some change. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually kind of how it goes. <laughs> I say that as a publisher. Like, I feel like some people might be like, are you shitting on his book? Like, no, no, it's just a small press world. <laughs> and Taylor Swift no, is a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah, my last book I made decent money on. So like late, my lazy fascist books, you know, like sometimes, you know, like how much money I think I make off motherfucking sharks? Maybe, maybe two thousand dollars over. You know, and that came out a while back. Maybe more than that, but not by much. And there have definitely been months where you know, or whatever, I've gotten royalty payments, and it's been like eight dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I've gotten it where it's like three dollars, and it's like ah, at least someone yeah. enjoyed it, maybe. Yeah. No, I mean you know, sales to sale. It is what it is, and sometimes things pop off, and you get a little more money than you thought you would. It not you know, but you got to begin the game a minute. I think uh, very atypical that your first two or three books make you much money. Every you know, unless it's like you sold it to a big press. Do your, like, daughters see you as, like, dad the writer? Or is that saying, like, dad's hobby? They know I write. Yeah, they probably see it a little bit more as, like, dad's hobby, maybe. I don't know. Well, my older daughter still kind of remembers me as a college professor a little bit more. So I guess in that way it was a little more integrated, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, or you know, if something cool happens, they'll see it a little bit more. So, like, you know, like if I go to some, you know, conference early, you know, like when Opioid came out, like Penguin flew me out to uh, New York and we had a little party or whatever. And, you know, they knew about like that. They understood. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, dad's going to go to New York for a, for a book release thing. So we went at stuff like that, you know, maybe a little bit. But day to day, yeah, I don't think they, they know I write. I think my oldest daughter might tell people, you know, that I write, but they know it's not my primary job or anything. They don't like, that's not your identifier? No, but I don't think they fully identify me with my job either. I think when I talk. I'll say, I don't know what my dad does for a living either. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Yeah, I just don't think they care. They're not, like, super into the minutia of my existence, you know what I mean? They're like, that's the dude who sits in the living room and hums. I hum a lot. Is that a dad job? What the hell is that? What is it with you men? I don't know. It's just what we got going Sorry, on. Like, that's what my dad does, too. I'm just like, you know, he sits in the chair, he watches NFL, smokes a cigar. Yeah, it's good times, man. <laughs> We got to be at the house to protect it, just in case. <laughs> just in case somebody is going to watch the NFL and be like, oh, my God, Taylor Swift is on it. Bad. You got to be there to protect the, 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 the living room. <laughs> I find the way that, like, kids identify, like, their parents with fascinating. So that's why I immediately had to ask about it. Cause like, I don't know, I, I might one day have kids and I'm very curious, like what, what will they identify me as? And I'm really hoping it's not just the, Oh, isn't it so cute? She writes books occasionally. Yeah. I, I mean, it's better than nothing. <laughs>
It is better than nothing. Like, you have a really cool past. Like, have you shared your really cool past with your kids? Like, come on. Like, everything we just learned in this podcast, like, your kids probably think, like, that's a badass story. My kids think that I'm a trip, you know, I think a little bit. They think that they're like, Dad gets arrested some. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Dad got high. And it doesn't seem like you're an embarrassing type. Yeah. Like, you're the person where it's like, oh, it's not like a redneck way. It's, uh, oh, my God, Dad just did that again. Yeah, he's our white trash father. (laughs) (laughs) So you think they're going to read the book? or I I don't. I doubt it. My wife did. My wife's only read, I think, two of mine. Opioid in this one, and I, and I only had I kind of made her. Well, no, opioid. I think she wanted to read, and then this one I kind of made her read, just you know, to see if she thought I should change anything. I don't wonder if my kids will ever read anything. Now with this one, maybe because it's a little more autobiographical, and like my oldest daughter, the the the, the main character Cook has got two daughters in it: the oldest daughter and the youngest daughter. And so they might pick it up to see themselves in it with opioid. I'll say there's a family unit here. I was yeah. going to say, like, I can imagine a curiosity. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. I mean, I would now I will tell you this. My oldest daughter's read a Tessa Mosfag. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she bought my year of rest and relaxation just randomly off fucking Amazon. I wasn't jealous. <laughs> 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 Uh, good times. Like, you know, your kids do get bragging rights. So I mean, you you could Google you. They can Google you and be like, "Hey, my dad has a Wikipedia." Like most <laughs> most parents don't. So that's like Dude, a very cool my Wikipedia. Thing. Some one of my students from UND put on my Wikipedia that like something like he teaches at something something and he's still aggressively battling male male pattern baldness. <laughs> What? Let me, yeah, it says like the last. Hang on, dude. I'm gonna pull it up really quickly. <laughs> it's great because you know anybody can corrected that. Change them, right? So let's see here. Uh, oh, motherfuckers! They took it off. See, someone liked you though. That that's how you know someone actually was like, ah, oh, we got to cover his ass. Oh, and they put on bad foundations too. I wonder who changed it. Clash, you bastards. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'll say, this is the type that actually might really like you. Be like, ah, oh, let's get rid of this. Yeah. Clash was like, they don't need to know that he's aggressively battling male pattern baldness. <laughs> I'm not even aggressively battling it. It's just happening. <laughs> Every day you I sharpen what? my spear and fight my scalp. You, you wear a good baseball cap, sir. Like, yeah, this, you have to. I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 90s. I have a trucker cap stapled to my skull. <laughs> so no one's going to know. <laughs> exactly. So, so long as my Wikipedia page is updated. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep guard over your Wiki page now, too. <laughs> now that you're the best. <laughs> All right, that was Brian Allen Carr. You can grab a copy of Bad Foundations from Clash Books or wherever you get your lit action from. 
I recommend checking out indie bookstores, bookshop.org, and obviously from the Clash Books website. Explore more of his work that we discussed in the show, and check out his Wikipedia page to see the stuff that we didn't cover. Be sure to check the show notes for all the proper spellings and links. As always, please check out our Twitter, at PodHealing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us support by going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review or subscribing to us on Spotify. And of course, don't forget the Patreon. This is Mallory Smart. We'll be back next Saturday with an off-the-record episode with Joshua Bonsack. Thanks for listening to the show. Thank you.